Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Those are verses 5 through 9 and 14 of Psalm 118, which along with Psalm 117 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, January the 8th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. We're continuing to look in uh, Isaiah's Messianic prophecies with uh, chapter 59, verses 15 to 21, Um, also continuing to look again at the letters to the churches from Revelation this time it's two different letters, one to the church in Smyrna, the other to the church in Pergamum, and it's from Revelation 2, verses 8 to 17, and then in John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. So <clears throat> the, the prophecy today begins with, "'Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey.'" That's a, you know, what a wonderful little two-line uh, verse that is. It, it, it's the times we live in, right? Truth is lacking, and anyone who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And it feels that way today. It feels like like if we don't participate with evil in the world, um, then we become a prey for those who would have us participate in that. We, we mark ourselves out as distinct and different from the rest of the world if we're not participating in evil. And, and the world is more full of evil today than, it is, than it's been in a very, very long time. And, and I'm, you know, in the past, it usually would be, okay, here or there or whatever. But today it feels like it's everywhere. And it feels like truth is a commodity that's very difficult to come by. And I'm not sure where to tell you to go to find it outside the Word of God, to be honest with you, because I don't think you can trust the normal outlets for truth. The Lord saw it, the situation that I just described, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. And so that would describe the situation when Jesus came into the world and, and came to his own. There was no justice, and that there was no one who would intercede, and he then had to go and do this himself, this rescue work of salvation. And we saw that recently in one of the gospel lessons we looked at when the people from the temple, the the chief priests and the Pharisees sent out the temple guards to go and arrest Jesus, and when they came back, they, without him, <laughs> they, they were asked, why did you come back without him? And they said, well, nobody ever spoke like this guy did. And the response was, well, have any of us believed in him? And they said, well, but the people do. And the response was, well, the people don't know the law, this rabble, in fact, don't know the law, and they're accursed. And That describes the situation. There was no one to intercede. I mean, John was the only one who was actually out there trying to bring truth to the people out of concern and love for the people. And so God said, I have to do it myself. Well, it's what he had announced multiple times that he was going to do. And I mentioned this a couple times already. In Ezekiel and Zechariah, both 
he spoke about the wicked shepherds or the bad shepherds, whatever words you want to put there, and, and said that he would ultimately come and shepherd the flock himself because he couldn't find any other shepherds. So <clears throat> what happens? His arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothed him and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So in other words, he, he's coming for, for battle. He's coming f- to win this thing. <clears throat> According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. And, and it's a, a, a thing that's a painful thing. Uh, it should be a painful thing anyway for us to see that, that some of those who were his enemies, as we read in the gospel, were his people. And we see, you know, a couple of weeks ago I mentioned, maybe a little longer than that now, but I mentioned about Josephus and Tacitus, both historians in the, uh, around the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, who noted that they saw armies in the sky. They saw the heavenly armies, and that many people saw that in AD 66, which was four years before the destruction of the temple. And and those armies were arrayed not against the world, but against Jerusalem itself. And so it's shocking to think about it that way, but that's exactly what they saw. These Jewish historic, one of them Jewish historian, Josephus Tacitus was a Roman historian, but they saw these things four years prior to the destruction of the temple itself. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he'll render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and the glory, his glory from the rising of the sun, which is the east, (laughs) for he'll come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So the redeemer only comes to those who turn from transgression. And what was the work of John the Baptist? Right? It was to turn the people from transgression. It was to turn them to righteousness, to call them to repentance. And a And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that's upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth forevermore. And that was exactly the intention that he had for when they came into the land. They were supposed to have the word always on their mouths. They were supposed to be on their doorposts, on the bells of the animals, on the gates of their homes. It was supposed to be everywhere in the land, filling the land. And so what happens is Jesus comes, and he's rejected by the leaders of the people, but within very short order, after people began to follow him. And then that continued along until we get to the, the time of the crucifixion, and then at Pentecost, what we see is the spirit falling that says this, my spirit that's upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth. You see the spirit fall, and then you see this great harvest. And that harvest was Jews, those people from all nations who had gathered together there for this harvest festival of Pentecost. And so for a, a, a quite some time after that, the mission is completely a mission to um, other Jews. It's, it's not turned outward to the Gentiles, really, until Paul begins his mission work. Before that, you see Philip uh, go out in Acts 8. Yeah, Acts 8, he goes, but he goes to Samaria, 
which are sort of lost Jews. They are people who, who trace their roots back to Judaism and that they branched off from Judaism at the, after the time of the, um, before the time of the temple in Jerusalem, before David and all of that. And, and they only have the five books of Moses, but Jesus had been there. And, and preached to them, and so that's where he went, and then he was taken up in the Spirit there, and then he, he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, who is there to worship. He was there for, for the festival and had come to worship, and so the mission really didn't move itself outside of Judaism until Paul, and, and that was largely because Paul was persona non grata <laughs> in the land and among uh, the Jews because of, of his conversion to Christianity, and so it was far better for him— <laughs> to push outside, but initially, even then, he was going to synagogues, wherever he went, was the, was the primary place where he would begin his mission work. Um, and so it, it, it's not that the Jewish people were rejected. It would never be the way that, that we should ever speak about Christianity, was is that, that the initial impetus for all the mission came directly from within Judaism. And then moved outward from there. It was just the rejection of him by the, by the leadership was was the issue. <clears throat> if we then turn to the gospel lesson today, we're in John four, and and, and here again, where we're coming from. Just so you'll know the setting of this, he has just had the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, and he has come from Jerusalem, going back north up to Galilee when all this happens, and, and what it says is that he had to go through Samaria, and I've said this many times before, he didn't have to. Most people wouldn't have. They would have avoided Samaria altogether and taken the long route around, but Jesus chose to go through Samaria, which puts him in the place where he is then able to speak to the Samaritan woman and, and tell her, you know, you guys don't know what you're talking about. What you believe is wrong, that salvation comes from the Jews. And so she she's confronted in bad theology, in wrong theology, and it's something, it's the pride of the Samaritans, and Jesus has confronted her there. So where we pick up the story now is he has come back to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, not knowing he had gone through Samaria, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And we can assume that this official was a Jewish official and not a Roman official, and you can assume that based on other things that are said. But if he had known that he had come through Samaria and, and had preached to the people there, then he might not have even asked him to come in. <clears throat> so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You know, the guy could have said, well, I could have gone other places, but I came to you because I believed that you could do something about the situation. So it's odd that Jesus kind of confronts this guy in this thing, and the official said, sir, come down before my child dies. In other words, I, I'm, I believe you could do something now. And we see a similar kind of thing with the Roman official who says, look, you don't have to come under my roof. I'm not worthy for that. You can just speak the word only, and my my child will be healed. And so Jesus says the same says confronts this guy, who then says, "Hey, come on down. I, I need you to come. I don't want to stand here and argue with you about this." And Jesus said to him, "Go, your son will live." And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So Jesus had said, "You won't believe unless you see," and the man did. He actually believed because of what he heard the promise that Jesus made. He took him at his word, and he went away. 
And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when it began to get better, and they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him, which is going to be, what, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. It's a remarkable thing, but, but that's what we're called to do, is we're called to take God at his word, and we're, to, we're, we're called to move out at his word. Um, it, it's exactly what Abraham did, for instance. It's exactly what Moses did. It's exactly what Joshua did. It's exactly what David did on several occasions, that when we know that we have heard from the Lord, then we are to set out in faith, believing that whatever he has said is what will come to pass. In the letters to the churches today, in Revelation 2, verses 8 to 17, and the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but but John initially gives us a picture of Jesus whenever he sees him, and he falls at his feet as though dead, and, and there are multiple descriptors there. And so each one of these letters has its own unique descriptor for the one who is sending the letter. And this time, what it is, is that, that he is the first and the last who died and came to life, it's, which would be a way of saying the eternal one. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. And they were, these people would have been the ones that Paul would have referred to as the Judaizers, the one that wanted to come and add the law and add circumcision and everything else to the requirement for being a Christian. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Oh, great. (laughs) Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. So he's giving a prophetic word about what's getting ready to happen in Smyrna. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Well, that's not really encouraging, right? I mean, but it's encouraging in a sense that, that if you're faithful in this tribulation and this trial, and if you're faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life. So it will look like death, but what will really happen is you will receive the crown of life. And the promise is made by the one who wrote the letter, the words of the first and the last, and who died and came to life. And so the promise is based in the description of the, the, the little piece of description that, that goes with the letter itself. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So it's the promise of the one who died and came to life is is that if you conquer, you will not be hurt by the second death. And it's the promise of the one who died and came back to life. There's no... what am I going to say? There's, there's no criticism of the church in Smyrna. There's just a warning about what's to come, what you're about to suffer. And, and they're going to suffer, but, he says, like me, you will live. And then the second letter for today is this angel of the church at Pergamum, right? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So it's the sword coming from his mouth that John told us about, this sharp two-edged sword, which is again described in the book of Hebrews as is sharper than it the word is sharper than any two-edged sword dividing to uh to the place of joint and marrow to the division of joint and marrow and so there's, there's a sharp word that's going to accompany this i know where you dwell where satan's throne is and we've talked about that a little bit that there was actually a, a, a throne set up there for an idol that that 
was called Satan's throne. And I think I've told you this, too, that that 100 years ago or so, before the Nazis, um, the Germans took that that throne, that piece of architecture, and moved it to Berlin. It then became the model for where uh, Adolf Hitler would speak to the people. This throne of Satan became the place, the colonnaded place, from which he would speak when he addressed the people there in Berlin. When, when the pictures and the videos that you see of, of all the soldiers arrayed and Hitler speaking from that, that raised platform, that's modeled on this um, Satan's throne. He says, even though that's where you are, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And I've spoken about that before as well. And he was a sort of a bishop in that region who had been put to death uh, there. But I have a few things against you. Yet you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Well, if you remember back in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council, there were only a very few things that were enjoined upon the Gentile converts, and that included don't eat stuff with the blood still in it, don't eat things that are sacrificed to idols and knowingly, and then don't practice sexual immorality. And so those two things they're doing, apparently, here in Pergamum, and, and Jesus relates that back to Balaam. And what he did was he gave Balaam the advice on how to destroy the Jewish people, and that is to send our Moabite women in there and wreck their morality um, and cause them to, to uh, also then worship false gods. And so he says that same thing's going on there, and it's one of the things you were, there were two of the things, actually, that you were warned about not to do as Christians. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and as I mentioned yesterday, what they taught was is that you could, um, sins of the body didn't affect the soul, so that you could do pretty much anything you wanted to with the body. In, in other words, you could do these kinds of things. <laughs> you could eat the... Um, food sacrificed to idols because, well, what difference did it make? It was just food anyway, and it would pass through, and it would go out, you know, the other end. And then sexual immorality was, well, okay, that just affects the body. It doesn't affect the soul, in spite of the fact that Scripture is very clear that it does, <laughs> that it absolutely affects the soul as well. And so he, he's saying that, that you've been captivated by a, a wrong philosophy of the body, that you've been taught something that that is, is anathema, to, um, to Christianity and to Judaism, and, and it should have learned by the Incarnation itself. You should know that that's not true, that the body itself actually matters. Otherwise, why would Jesus have done that? He said, therefore, repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth, which is the Spirit. It's the Word of God, and I will prove it to you directly from the Word of God, and I'll come against you. In that place, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And that is the the name that God is giving you to those who, who conquer. It's the, the way in which you're known in heaven. It, it's a powerful thing, and we're called to walk in faith but we're called also to walk in truth, 
Both those things are important. We found that out in the very first sentence in that Isaiah passage. And here in this letter to Pergamum, what we're told is, I will come and fight you with the word of my mouth, which is the the sword of my mouth, the sword of the Spirit, the truth, the word. So it's important that we walk in faith, but it's equally important that we walk in truth in all things.